You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, hello, everybody. I'm really excited to be with you today. Um, We're going to be talking about fellowship and gathering, and I'm thankful that I get to share with you. My position here is canon for liturgy and worship, so in kind of plain speak, I'm an associate pastor, one of the pastors here, and my job is to oversee what we do in all our services in liturgy and worship. Sometimes when people see me running around or on Sundays, they think, and they'll call me this, I'm just the guitar guy. Um, But I do a little bit more than that around here. One of the things I do is closely work with Fred Teardo and Charles Kennedy in helping plan and execute our services from a musical and liturgical standpoint. And that's always been my call. I've kind of been a hybrid pastoral guy and musical worship guy. That's just been a part of my DNA ever since I was a teenager. And the Lord just had this call in my life and it's been a part of uh, my growing up. I wanted to share a little bit about, I'm going to talk a bunch and hopefully leave lots of time for questions about anything having to do with worship. But even more than that, I want to say in the, in the very beginning, worship and liturgy at the Advent is very complex. And certainly, depending on your background and where you come from, things will be more or less familiar to what you do. And I'm happy to report that there's a why behind everything that we do, uh, for the most part. And there's a lot of things that go on, and we process those things very deeply and theologically and biblically here. And I'd love to chat with you about those things, especially if you've got specific questions. At the end of the class, though, as an aid to you, we're going to be passing this around. Fontaine's going to pass it around at the end of class. And this is what I would call our best shot at helping you to understand our liturgy. And so what it is, is called, it's a commentary and guide to our liturgy. It's got both sets of liturgies in there. So our morning prayer liturgy and our Holy Communion liturgy. And if you open it up, it's laid out in such a way where once you get past the introductory stuff, you basically have the service outline as you kind of see it in a bulletin on the left, and then explanations of stuff on the right that go into way more depth than anything we'd want to do in a worship service because in a worship service, we're not there to teach. We're there to encounter the presence of God. And so um, it doesn't tell you everything about the liturgy that there is. There are lots of like really thick books that are commentaries on liturgy and can weigh you down. But it'll tell you what we think is most important for you to know so that you can clearly hear the gospel, clearly hear God's word, and participate with knowledge and be able to help others, especially kids, understand what we do. So I commend that resource to you um, to read it sometime. Use it as what puts you to sleep at night, if you need to, as well. Uh, So, um, I grew up in Hawaii, of all places, and I like to remind Southerners, first of all, I was raised by an Alabama woman, so even though I'm not really Southern, I've got that blood, and I would like to remind Southerners that I grew up in the southernmost state in the Union. Um, And I was born on Maui, raised on Oahu, lived there my whole life till I graduated high school. and really came to faith as a kid because my parents were committed Christians and I grew up in one church and that experience of my parents being committed lay people in a local church through all its ups and downs has really shaped me. It's where I received not only my call from death to life from Jesus, but I also received my call to ministry at an early age. So when I was a teenager on a youth retreat, that's that it was really a kind of a powerful experience of reading God's word and sensing God wanted me for pastoral ministry. And it was around that time 
for me, a late bloomer that God started cultivating musical gifts. So I went to college in Los Angeles, went to a music school there, studied music, met my wife. We got married and we moved back to near where she grew up. We moved to Denver and lived there, had all our kids there. We've got four kids, three boys and a girl, 15, 13, 11, and 10. And uh, they're all in that. We live in Vestavia. We're in the Vestavia school system. That's kind of our life right now is shuttling them around. We feel like taxis um, to all their events. And we try to keep it minimum, but still we're sucked up in the rat race right now. So if you know what that's like, pray for us. Um, We lived in Denver for a long time, thought we were going to stay there forever. And then God called us to a church in South Florida, of all places. So we moved to Fort Lauderdale near Miami. Served a church there for three years, and that church had some interesting connections to the Advent. And that's how I ended up here, because I started a doctoral program at a seminary in Fort Lauderdale. Um, And it was in the area of worship and theology and the English Reformation and the prayer book and those kinds of things. So uh, that's where I met a bunch of our clergy, and we got to know each other. We started talking about worship and said, oh my gosh, we have a really unified vision of this kind of thing. And Perhaps some of my gifts could be of use at the Advent. And the Lord was releasing me from my time at that church there. And my family's in Birmingham, Alabama. Never thought I'd live here in a million years. And here I am uh, navigating my way and loving it, really feeling loved by our church, really feeling like I love this church and I love you all. And I'm really grateful to be a part of the pastoral team and serve you and serve alongside you and minister the gospel here. I love our mission. That's why I'm here. I'm here because of the dead center of our mission about proclaiming the gospel and making disciples wherever God has placed us. I'm radically committed to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ for non-Christians and Christians. I believe in it. Um, I believe in it for our liturgy. I believe in it for everything that we do from the pulpit, everything you and I do as individuals from Monday through Saturday. And I actually want to talk about that for a little bit, but I want to rehearse just briefly the weeks leading up to this you know we first week we've been talking about praise god the gospel and then week two we talked maybe unpacked that a little bit by talking about repentance and belief which is the shape uh, in which a human being like you and me encounter the gospel and that we never really get beyond repenting that repentance is the work of the christian you know jesus what what must i do and jesus said the work you must do is to believe in me. And that's kind of shorthand for repentance, that you and I are to be about the business of confessing our sin all the time and uh, receiving the confession of Christ over us all the time. Then we talked about those two sacraments in the next few weeks that help confirm, illustrate, and seal those realities, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And praise God for those things that feed us and sustain us weekly. And now we're here to talk about fellowship and gathering. And I want to break this open because, um, because I live in the worship world and I interact with a lot of people who are called worship leaders and have lots of conversations with people about worship services and the way they shape people and music and liturgy and how they interface. Sometimes I find in these conversations, we talk past one another when we're talking about the word worship. And so I want to give us a quick probably dirty, uh, biblical understanding of what worship is because it's a little complex and uh, it confuses conversations. But I want to start by thinking of them in three, in three spheres. The first sphere is uh, just what I want to describe as worship in general. 
If you open up to Genesis, or if you read a place like Romans 12, you get the perspective that every human being is hardwired as a worshiper. And I'm talking every human being. I'm not just talking Christians. I'm talking every last one of us. And that in many ways, you and I make all our decisions, I don't care what the decision is, based on what our heart really loves. That's a worship decision. The adoration and the affection of our heart, where our heart is aimed and what our hearts are truly after, that's what we truly worship. You know, it's all, it's, uh, that's why the Bible talks a lot about idolatry, is because you and I are worship machines. God designed us to adore and be gratified in the adoration of him. And as a result, as a result of the fall, that beam of adoration that should solely go to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has been kind of busted and re-aimed in all sorts of different places. One could say that all of salvation is God's factory recall of broken worshipers so that we re-aim our worship back on the true object, the only one upon whom, if we worship him, he can actually fulfill these longings of our hearts. One could say that all the brokenness and all the corruption of the world is all about misaimed worship. Everything from uh, you know, politics, global strife, to the individual things that plague you and me. Those are all ultimately worship issues, misaimed worship. If you want to get to the root of any sort of besetting sin or any problem in your life, chances are way deep down is a fundamental issue of worship because we were all designed as worshiping beings to worship God, which means that out there everywhere, we're aiming those beams in all sorts of directions, all kinds of places. You could imagine everybody's got their beam aimed somewhere, and oftentimes a good cue is what keeps you up at night, what wakes you up in the morning, what drives you and motivates you. Then you ask those kinds of questions, you start to get at the worship questions. Uh, and so, God's goal is that that beam, that orientation of our life, be centered and pointed to Him. But there's also another sphere that's within this worshiping sphere of what might be uniquely Christian. What makes worship Christian? Christian worship is made when God seizes a human being and redirects that beam, that aim, back at him by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ alone. So Christian worship is a human being that's been reoriented toward God to glorify him in their whole life. We're not just talking about Sunday here. We're talking about Monday through Saturday as well. Their whole life is oriented toward God through Jesus Christ because of the gospel having broken through the hardness of heart and made us point back to him. That's uniquely Christian worship and that's an all-life thing, which means that you and I as Christians don't worship on Sundays. In fact, we worship the Lord every day and our, our call as disciples in one sense, and I'm going to use a worship word that scripture uses a lot, is to glorify the Lord. This word glory in Greek is doxa, which where we get our word doxology. Your whole life should be doxological. When you wake up on, on Monday morning and you go to work or you interact with your roommates or your neighbors or your classmates, that's an opportunity to glorify the Lord, to worship the Lord through that horizontal activity. In many ways, everything you do is a chance to glorify and worship the Lord. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about Christian worship. But then there's a third category within that, which I'm going to write gathered. 
Gathered Christian worship is that unique activity that you and I do when we come together on a Sunday as one Christian community and aim all our glory together on the Lord. And we do this through biblical means that give us kind of rituals and practices to help aim that glory in a Christ-centered way. So the goal of gathered worship is to, in a sense, rehearse what all of life should be. I know it sounds strange, but the liturgy is designed to orient you in certain patterns of living so that your life looks like that on a weekday basis. What do I mean by that? Well, if really uh, the truth is all of life is repentance and that the Christian life is one of repentance, the liturgy gives us a kind of ritualistic framework to understand the way our lives non-ritualistically should be executed in and around the person and work of Jesus Christ, in and around repentance. That's the idea. We could sort of walk through various uh, biblical passages that highlight each aspect, but what I want to say is all these are worship. Again, every human being is a worshiper, but when God calls a human being out from death to life through Jesus Christ, he calls you to reorient your whole life through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to him. And that's, your whole life is worship. But then we come at unique times to kind of recalibrate because the reality is as Christians, you and I go through life and it's kind of like uh, if, you, if you're a guitar player, even if you just leave a guitar hanging up on a wall for a week, it sort of goes out of tune, right? Well, when we come to worship, we do what that great hymn, Come Thou Fount, says God does to us. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. In a way, that's what we could say gathered worship is there to do, is to, is to take that kind of detuned guitar. You know, we were strumming the chord of Jesus on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, that strum kind of got out of tune because, oh man, that worship beam is a strong pulse, and it goes in all sorts of directions. And God says, come back, repent, come to me. And so we come together to do these rituals so that our hearts might be tuned to sing his praise. That when the chord strums, it strums, Jesus, all right? That's the idea. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's the goal. I want to talk about now the value of worship in the prayer book tradition. So we're an Episcopal church. That means we're a church in the Anglican tradition, which means that in church history, God saw fit in the Reformation to do a, a fresh work of the Spirit and to send um, a church group, a group of churches in a new direction in England. They were kind of all gathered around in England doing their thing and then the Holy Spirit breathed a fresh word into life and yes, it was totally admired with politics and history and King Henry's whims and all that sort of stuff. But at the root of it was a reclamation of the gospel. And at that moment in the life, um, in many ways we could say the Anglican tradition of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church was born. And that stream is the stream that you and I find ourselves in, in downtown Birmingham in the 21st century. That stream that has, is part of uh, Christ Church, has reclaimed and found the gospel as something we need to cling to. And that's where we are. Right at the get-go of that, uh, a man named Thomas Cranmer, a guy I've been studying in my doctoral work, and if you want to read my nerdy thesis, I'll give it to you sometime. Uh, but a guy named Thomas Cranmer, was seized by a vision of the gospel. In fact, his own heart was captivated by the fact that God would save a sinner like him. And he began to think, what would it look like as we create worship services in English for the first time? 
to orient those services in and around the good news of Jesus Christ. So he didn't just translate Latin liturgies to English liturgies, which is what was going on in the 16th century. It was a lot of vernacular liturgies were coming out. He was not only doing translation work, he was doing theological transposition work because he was saying, we need a sort of reform of the liturgy. And so as he was translating from Latin to English, he was also transposing from less gospel to more gospel. As he transposed, he created, along with others, what's called the Book of Common Prayer. That book has been uh, passed down through generations, gone many different directions across the globe, been through revisions after revisions. But by and large, you and I are, are receptacles of that tradition, of the tradition of the historic church coming up with liturgies and ways for Christians to worship as they read the Bible and said, how do we worship? How does this guide us to? And they would form liturgies. And then Cranmer comes along and says, how do I be faithful to this gospel here? I'm going to take the liturgies that have been a part of church history from early times to the present. And he gave us the Book of Common Prayer. And that's by and large what you and I worship in. And what I love about and what I commend to you about the Book of Common Prayer is that number one, we have a historical book. And that's significant because when you and I profess with the creed, that I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What we're basically saying is when I gather with Christians on Sundays, I recognize that I'm a part of a group that transcends what I see right here. Not only in space. Yes, I recognize that I'm worshiping with Christians in Africa and Malaysia and Russia, right? But I also recognize I'm worshiping with Christians who have gone before me. The holy communion of saints, as we say. And one of the ways that we can embody that is by utilizing liturgies that aren't just our own, but are ones that Christians have used before. It's why maybe, it's not the only reason, and there are some liabilities here, but it's why we're okay having the use of language that may not be totally on the tip of our tongues in our, our 21st century vernacular. We may have to work for it. Why? Because it helps me remember, oh, I'm worshiping with others who have gone before me, and I stand in a lineage I stand in a heritage of the gospel and I want to be faithful to it. It's why we might sing songs that aren't just written in the 21st century because we recognize we're singing with other saints who have gone before us, you know? So I, I think the prayer book tradition is valuable because it reminds us of our identity as Christians who are part of something that isn't just a now thing, which is incredibly countercultural now because everything's about now. And uh, culture's yearning for roots our fragmented postmodern culture is yearning for something less fragmented and rooted. And praise God, Christians have that because we have a heritage of faithful Christians having read their Bibles in the power of the Holy Spirit and through that process have come up with things and practices for us to inherit and to receive. And always, yes, ask if it's conforming to this book, but nevertheless, inherit and receive. So historical is one. But even better than that is the prayer book traditions biblical. I don't know if you know this, but the Book of Common Prayer, i.e. the liturgies that you and I utilize week in and week out, two-thirds of it is either direct quotation of Scripture or scriptural allusion. That's about uh, the best we can do with the stats because it's a little bit tricky. But basically, as the liturgy was being translated, it was being just truckloaded with Scripture such that even the words you and I pray back to God are gifts of God. They're not our own words, which is a powerful testament to the power of the gospel. That's a free gift of God's grace. And I love that you and I worship with words that we don't manufacture, but that are given to us 
not even just merely by human invention, but by humanly inspired by the Spirit invention. You know, we're given God's word to pray back to him. Um, and I don't know about you, I often find I come to a worship service not ready and really unable to voice those things that I need to voice to God. And it is a gift to be given what to say. And isn't it gracious of God that he would, in his word, give us the words to pray back to him? I could outline to you and show you on graphs and cool, uh, cool slides all the ways that the liturgy is quoting scripture and alluding to scripture. And if you want to do that, I will take you out to coffee and open up my computer and we can nerd out on that stuff. But um, just know you're praying the Bible to God as you engage in some of that stuff. And occasionally I teach a prayer book class where I do expand on this. So if you ever see that come around the horn, um, check it out. Thirdly, I would remind us that the prayer book tradition is insanely practical. It's practical because, as I said, when we engage these liturgies, they wear grooves into our hearts that worship at its best is supposed to be a ritualized, distilled form of all of Christian life. And that's what I meant when I said that repentance is something that you and I do on a regular basis. Well, worship is, a, is kind of a distilled form of repentance. And you and I enact these rituals, not to go through them mindlessly, but to have them shape us into a certain kind of person. Actually, it's supposed to shape us into the image and likeness of Christ. Because Paul said, uh, it is not I, but Christ who lives within me. If we're talking about the Christian life, what is the Christian life? It is Christ who lives within me. Period. That's what I'd say. The Christian life isn't my striving. <laughs> it's actually my denial of myself and my sort of participation with the Holy Spirit in putting to death the flesh and allowing Christ to be resurrected in me. So if, if I want to point to the Christian life of Zach Hicks, I'm pointing to Jesus. And in a way, a worship service is meant to do that and to drive that out of us. So it's historical, biblical, and practical. Those three things I would say about the prayer book tradition. All right, I want to talk about some liabilities of the prayer book tradition. This is like if Zach, Pastor Zach, were with people just one shot and you're coming in new to the church, here's what I want to say is to watch out for. Watch out for. Number one, the liability of liturgical worship, and by litur every church has a liturgy, whether or not it's written down and formalized. And we often talk about churches like ours being liturgical churches, and I understand that language. But you go to a Pentecostal church with no liturgy, and they've got a liturgy, right? They've got a, a series of the way that they do things, right? But in, in a liturgical context like ours, one of the liabilities is that it always wants to downgrade into mere ritualism. Why is it that over the course of Christian history, there were always branches off of this mainstream of the Christian liturgical church that was reacting against the liturgical realities and going in a more free church direction? Why is that? It's because it's always liable to become dead. It's always liable to become dead. And you and I experience this on a week-to-week -week basis when we're just kind of mouthing this stuff. And it's coming off of our lips, but it's not in our hearts, you know? That's always the danger. And there, that means there's a bit of an effort that needs to go into pressing into these words because, you know, they won't naturally summon the heart unless you're willing to kind of step into it. And that's my pastoral admonition to you is to press into these things, to press into the emotion of them, 
You know, it's one of the big ironies is that when Cranmer set out a prayer book, if you read his preface for the prayer book in 1552, one of the things he said, my objective with this thing is his words, that your heart may be inflamed the more with his holy religion. He intended that the Book of Common Prayer actually be a very charismatic event. He intended that when we engage these liturgies, we're weeping, we're crying, our hearts are moved and transformed and changed. And it's one of the great ironies that if you talk to Christians across all the traditions, if you say, which tradition is the most stoic and the least emotional, it's always us. It's always us. That's an irony, right? Because really our whole being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything is supposed to be summoned in this moment. And there's always kind of this doxological entropy, this natural second law of thermodynamics at play in worship for liturgical worshipers, which is to only engage my sort of mind and mouth, but not my heart. And that actually can be a liability because once you start going there, that'll kill your soul faster than anything. And then you'll need revival, right? And that kind of works into another liability of, of worship in the prayer book tradition. It'll downgrade into mere intellectualism. You see, there's a pride that can come with being liturgical people. We're not like those worshipers over there. You know, we've got a prayer book. We don't just invent our prayers. Our prayers have been thought and prayed through by the Bible. And all of a sudden, you're kind of not worshiping, but you're worshiping worship. It's like C.S. Lewis said, there's a difference between someone who's sitting on the rocks at a beach admiring the sunset and someone who's sitting on the rocks at the beach admiring themselves admiring the sunset. Have you ever seen that? It's like those Instagrammers that are like, had a great Devo today, and they're posting their Bible and a cup of coffee. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm loving this experience rather than loving Jesus, right? But we do the same thing with liturgy all the time. When we start getting on our, our proud high horse and all of a sudden we're in this mind game where we think, man, we've got it right. Or man, isn't this great stuff? Whoa, look at how deep this language. And all of a sudden we're actually um, allowing ourselves some distance from the heart-piercing reality of the word when we start talking and thinking like that. And it can be a real heady exercise, especially when you and I are barraged with all sorts of words uh, that aren't common to our vernacular, okay? You know, when we hear all these, this language in, in communion, uh, oblation, once offered for himself, you know, all that stuff, and we're like, I don't know. And all of a sudden, you're kind of, you're, you're dialing in your mind, which is good. But oftentimes, that can be where it resides because actually, it's easier to hang on the intellectual level with some of this stuff than it is to let, you, let it move you and to let yourself be vulnerable about what it's summoning from you about the exposure that it's bringing you when it says, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts. of That's a very big statement to make at the beginning of a worship service, right? But that's the objective, that the Word of God cuts you open, exposes those places that need healing, and apply the balm of Jesus Christ to it. But we can stay on that intellectual level and be really proud of ourselves as liturgical worshipers and remain unchanged, all right? Thirdly, another liability is that the liturgy and symbols are not looked through, but at, becoming sacred in and of themselves rather than vehicles for the sacred. This is a liability. It's a real and present danger that we start to love the liturgy and all the stuff, what priests wear, these little chalices and the altar 
and the beauty of the sanctuary. Here's a metaphor that I want to give you that's a bit, it's going to be a bit confusing because it's going to sound like I'm against stained glass. I'm not. I'm using it as a metaphor, so hear me clearly. But worship, a good, good liturgy and the, all the good stuff of liturgy, you know, things that are manufactured by human beings for our purpose of encountering God, a good liturgy should function more like clear glass than stained glass. Why? Because a good liturgy actually helps you look through it to Jesus instead of look at it. You're not interested in the glass. You're interested in the view toward Jesus Christ and the cross. But a liability of liturgical worship throughout every generation. It was there in the Reformation. It's there here. It's, it's something that we wrestle with at the Advent. Is that we start looking at the liturgy and praising it. Or we start looking at all this stuff in our building and praising it. It's not there to be praised. It's there to point us to the one who is worthy to be praised and his name is Jesus. And if you find yourself sort of captivated by the stuff, you're missing the point because his job is to be clear glass, not stained glass. His job is to be looked through, not at. Its job is to give you an encounter with the living God through his word, not give you an encounter with it. And that's a liability when you've got something so beautiful and so marvelous, you know, is that over time it can do that. So I'm going to end here before I open it up for any questions you have. What do we hope you get out of our worship services? What I hope as your pastor, what your other pastors hope for, is that when you walk out of any one of the services at the Advent, and this is, this is a hope that I recognize comes at the intersection of broken human beings like you and me that don't realize this every week. But I hope that when you walk out of a worship service, you're not saying, man, that was a great choral anthem. Isn't our choir wonderful? Man, oh, isn't the liturgy marvelous? I just love the language of the liturgy. Man, wasn't that sermon great? Isn't that preacher so fabulous? Isn't the music great? No. I hope you walk out of a worship service saying, isn't Jesus a beautiful Savior? Isn't Jesus more beautiful and believable to me for having come here? My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Great is God's faithfulness. All this stuff is trying to drive you toward that. And if it's not, I wonder whether we should keep it, you know? So my admonition to you is that I hope that you get Jesus out of the worship service and that you're reminded again, as the word of God breaks you open, that Jesus Christ is your wholeness and is your all in all and is all that you ever need and that you walk out of a service. And maybe, yes, we do exclaim, Thank God for the sermon because oftentimes the translation of it is, is that pointed me to Jesus and I'm grateful for Jesus, right? So I'm not hung up on the words, but I'm hung up on the heart and I know my own heart and my tendency to turn it into stained glass rather than clear glass. So that's my admonition and now we've got plenty of times for you to barrage me and fight me if you want to. <laughs> Questions, thoughts, or particulars about worship and liturgy at the Advent? <coughs> yes, sir. We are in a time when the church, as we know it, certainly in this country, is more divided than it's ever been. My analysis is that there's a bifurcation between how people think about their faith on Sunday and how they think about it the rest of the week. So the question is, how can the church mend itself so that we're thinking about it 24-7, yeah. not, 20, uh, not two hours, one day. Because this is ripping this country apart. Yeah. What, what is the answer, Zach? 
Well, as trite as it sounds. I'm going to be very brief. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think the answer is anything else other than the good news of Jesus Christ breaking through hard hearts. Because division is a f- fruit and a byproduct of a hardened heart that isn't seized by the b- glory and beauty of the gospel. So I, if I'm thinking, how does that work in a church like Advent? I mean, sometimes I get overwhelmed by global issues. But I've got a flock to pastor and I've got Christians to partner with in the work of the ministry. Our job is to preach gospel to one another and to watch it bear fruit and to catechize one another, so to teach one another, to observe everything that Jesus has commanded in his scriptures. So if we're about just staying dead center on this good news of Jesus Christ, that is the only power of God unto salvation, and teaching one another how to live into and understand God's revealed will to us, that's about as good as I can do as an answer to that. Um, yeah, cause, and I think we, we can get on all sorts of rabbit trails that actually lead the church away from that one mission. And I half wonder whether that's not part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts or questions? That's a good question. What do you think about the new bishop coming in? What do I think? Yeah. I'm excited about her. Uh, I'm grateful that she's here. I, I mean, it really does feel like She's the Lord's person that's supposed to be in this role. And um, Advent's generally excited about her too. So uh, Advent is a unique place when it comes to worship and liturgy in particular. And we're having conversations about that right now. And we will continue to. But I'm optimistic, mostly because God's a good God and he's faithful to his people. Yeah. Good question. Okay. When it comes to liturgy and the stuff of liturgy in the church, yeah. If if you really want to see the O'Reilly collection, go over to the Greek Orthodox Church. Right. Their services, just the services, are three hours long, and you know our here our thing, you know, it's like a dozen pages. There's a thirty-two. Yeah. And they've got the icons and everything. Um, the Greek Orthodox has not changed their liturgy, with one small exception, in 1,500 years. And looking at that, and I've been a couple of times, and then looking at this, and then I grew up Baptist, you know, which is just like you come in, you, you, you sing, you pray, you listen to a sermon, you go to the buffet. The, uh, there... It is, the congregation is out here doing your thing. The priest and his assistants are up there doing their thing. The chanters are over here doing the liturgy in Greek, in Latin, and in English, just to make sure they don't piss off God. And every once in a while, everybody comes together and goes, hallelujah, and then it all spreads back out again. It's it's an experience. Um, But you don't get that whole... Jesus is right here in my heart thing. Um, well, we hope you do at the Advent. That's yeah. the goal. That is the goal. And I don't, I don't mean to demean this stuff because throughout every generation of the people of God, God has graciously given stuff to the people of God to help kind of mediate the experience. Let me think about a temple and Uh, a design of a temple and all the accoutrements of a temple. It's not that the stuff is bad, but every generation. I mean, hey, look up the bronze snake sometime in your Bible 
It comes up in two instances besides when Jesus talks about it in John 3. One is when it's used as a, as a stuff of healing for the people of God when they had plagues and God tells Moses to fashion this bronze snake in the wilderness to hold up, which becomes an image of Christ as Jesus talks about it in um, John 3. Uh, and so it's used to heal a bunch of people from rebelling against God. But you look at this small passage in either First or Second Kings, and by the time of one of the good kings of Israel, um, the good king had to unearth that thing and destroy it. Why? Because the people of God were worshiping it. Again, clear glass became stained glass, and it's just a liability of human beings. Yeah. Um, which parts of the worship service are fixed, and which parts um, are at discretion of the y'all, and who, how y'all make selections as to hymns and what scripture to read? Yeah. So um, typi- typically, hymns come in certain spots of the of the prayer book. There is some discretion to kind of move them around. Each each parish has its own stuff when it comes to where they put and place hymns and things like that. Most of the liturgy is fairly immovable. One of the tidbits of information is that several years ago we were, um, we were given permission by the bishop to utilize an older liturgy. And some people are confused by that, thinking that we're just lovers of Shakespearean, Elizabethan English, when really we're interested in the gospel that was more clear in previous liturgies. So if this makes any sense to you, a large part of our communion and morning prayer liturgies are taken from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, not the later editions, which um, in various ways, because of their revision, I'll just say it kind of blanketly, muted the gospel and made it less clear. And so that's one of the reasons that you actually hear this older language is it's kind of an approved form of a form of liturgy that gets us closer to hearing the Word of God a little bit more clearly. Uh, there are certain things that are movable based on, on uh, church calendar. So things like what's called the proper preface changes. Uh, it's this little part in the moment and our collects change. But as far as our discretion, there's not that much. You know, we utilize what's there and we stick to it. What else? Thank you. Well, oh, the, the, bells the bells have rung. <laughs> okay. You're going to. Yep, I'm going to. I'm yeah. curious what we have is here in this audience. Lenten Lunch Series, who are you most excited about? Oh, man. <laughs> I love Wes Hill. He's a, he's a friend. I love Wes. I mean, I don't think I could pick just one, but he's the first guy that came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so grateful to be called your children, and we are grateful that you bless us by giving us your word, And by giving us one another and calling us together, help us to not neglect the fellowship of believers. Help us to recognize that the means of grace that you give that are found on a week-to-week basis here are given nowhere else. They're not found on a ski hill or on a a mountaintop, but they're found when the people of God gather, when your presence is there by virtue of your spirit, and when your word is opened, and when you give yourself to us in word and sacrament. And so we ask that you be pleased to give yourself us to us in such a great measure that all kinds of fruit is born, that we might actually see a surprising miracle that your world is restored and that your church is restored. Um, and that's going to take a movement of you. We can't do it alone. Have mercy on us, and I pray for the hidden aches and the pains in this room and ask that you minister to them as we continue to worship today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.